I wonder how many of you um, would admit that while you like to read, you struggle to finish books. Go ahead and raise your hand if you admit that. How many of you like, uh, all right, more of you are better than I am. I love to read, but sometimes I just struggle to finish reading books. I've read the first three to four chapters of hundreds of books, right? And then all of a sudden, someone tells me about another book, and they, oh, I want to read that one too. Or I see this one on TV, oh, I need to read that one, but I struggle sometimes to finish good books. Well, where do most good books start? It's an easy one. In the beginning, right? All right, that, all right, we've got to wake up here, all right? Most good books start in the beginning. I can't tell you, I've lost count of the number of times that Lindsay and I have read the book or watched the movie Beauty and the Beast, all right? That's, the, that's the, the movie, that's the story at our home, especially with our little girl right now. I think that Lindsay has probably, not exaggerating, memorized half the movie. Would that be right? That you've got ha- half the movie memorized. She loves it when I call her out, by the way. Um, so let me continue on. But that movie, the story, it begins in the beginning by telling us how the prince becomes the what? The beast. Most good books are going to tell you they're going to start in the beginning and they're going to continue and gradually tell you a story of how it started and how it ends. So it might surprise you that as you look at the first four books of the New Testament, we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that none of them begin where you might think they would start. They don't start with the birth of Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem. If you begin with Matthew, Matthew begins 42 generations before the birth of Jesus. Remember, Matthew was writing in a way that he wanted to prove that that Jesus was sitting on the rightful throne as king because he was coming through the lineage of David. Mark begins with the prophecy of Isaiah. Luke begins to talk about the accuracy of, of the sources that he's using, and he begins by talking about the birth of John the Baptist. And today, in the next few months, we're going to be in John. And John, it, he begins even further back from where Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin, where he begins his gospel going back before even the beginning of time, even before creation. And his goal in starting here is to show that there has been this relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son that has always existed. To put it bluntly, John wants to make sure that we know that the the beginning of Jesus, his existence did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. So this morning, we're going to look at just the first five verses of the first chapter of John. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them to John chapter 1, and we're going to see that in just these first five verses, how Jesus is actually revealed as the eternal God. He begins with the first two verses of John chapter 1, and and John writes these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John introduces his gospel with the three same words that you may recall from the very first three words of the Bible, which are what in Genesis? In the beginning. He's making a correlation here that John is beginning, but he's going back even further than when Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he's even going back before time began, before God even created the world. And he's trying to demonstrate that there was this always been this close, personal, intimate relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. In the beginning was the Word. We're going to talk in just a minute. That Word refers to Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. 
The Greek word that's used there for in the beginning was the word is a word that, that's called logos. And logos, if you read it in its proper context, here's what it literally means. It literally means God's ultimate communication of truth about himself. Let me read that again. God's ultimate communication of truth about himself. So imagine that's what God is saying in the beginning was, was the word. In the beginning was God's ultimate communication of truth. This is who God is. So John is making it crystal clear that if you want to know who God is, get to know Jesus. Because the words and the deeds of Jesus are the words and the deeds of God the Father. John's going to great lengths to help us understand this, this intimate relationship, not only between God the Father and Jesus the Son, but also the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a, a fancy word that we call the Trinity. The Trinity, if you want to boggle your mind, just think about it for a little bit, okay? That God, as we just sung it a few minutes ago, God in three what? Persons, blessed Trinity, that God has this, this trifold nature. He's three, but he's also one. Again, it just baffles the mind to understand how God can be three in one. But John is making this crystal clear from the very beginning of his book. Now, you might find it interesting that the word Trinity is actually never used in the Bible. Do you know that? You can look in your concordance if you have one in the back of your Bible. You'll never see the word Trinity mentioned in the Bible. But the meaning and the essence of Trinity, it's used all the way, not on the New Testament, but it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So we're going to take just a few moments, and I want us to dig into these three very short, but I believe they are life-altering phrases that he puts just in John chapter 1, verse 1. The first phrase there is he says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, when you see that was, is that past, present, or future? It's a test, right? It's past, right? Why is it important that John says in the beginning was the Word? Because once again, he's demonstrated that Jesus has always existed, that Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. Now, in Bethlehem, at the birth of Jesus, yes, that is the moment that Jesus, he took on flesh. That is the moment he became like us. But let's not forget that there has never been a time in which Jesus did not exist. Before the creation of the world, before time even began, Jesus Christ, the Word, already existed. John's not just saying this. Jesus reinforced this as well. There was a time that he was talking to a group of Jewish people and he was trying to convey to them that, that guys, look, I'm not just one of many gods. I'm not just like God. He says, I am God. And you see it later in this same book in John chapter 8, verse uh, 58. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That title, I Am, was one of the most holy titles used of God. Do you remember when it was used? Remember Moses when he's meeting God in the burning bush and he's, he's afraid to go back to Pharaoh and he says, who should I say that is sending me to go and fight this battle? And God says, tell them that who? I Am has sent you. He's telling them there is this relationship that Jesus is God. From the very beginning of John's gospel, John argues that Jesus 
is not just one of many gods, which many people in our culture will try to get you to believe today. No, He is God Himself. Not only in the beginning was the Word, but the Word, the second part of uh, verse 1, the Word was with God. That word that John uses, he says with, it's continuing that theme of, of the Trinity. There's this relationship between Jesus and God the Father. They are one, but at the same time, they are also distinct in their nature. Again, as I shared a moment ago, this didn't begin just in the New Testament. We see the concept of the Trinity in the Old Testament as well. You go back to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and look what it says. Chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in, what's that next word? Our image. It wasn't just God the Father who was present in creation. Jesus, the Son, He was there as well. You say, well, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, it says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit hovered over the water. So we see the Trinity mentioned even in Genesis chapter 1. Then you can read in the book of Psalms where there's this conversation between two members of the Trinity. You see it in Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You continue to read in Matthew chapter 1. And Jesus reveals to the Pharisees that God is talking to him, that he is the one that God is talking to, telling him that. Then you've got the last phrase. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and then the last part is the Word was God. Now understand, this was by far the most controversial claim. It wasn't that Jesus was just in the beginning. It wasn't just that Jesus was with God, but the fact now that Jesus is claiming to be God, this would have been appalling. This would have been blasphemous to many of the readers who were reading the Gospel of John in his time. But friends, listen to me. If this is not true, that Jesus is God, then Jesus is a liar. If Jesus is not God, then we are wasting our time coming here on Sunday mornings trying to follow and emulate the person of Jesus Christ. It is so important that we get this right. So let me take a time out here for just a second and step away from the text. Because it's so important that we understand, and I'm taking a lot of time here to make sure that we, we understand what Jesus is saying, that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is God, then Jesus is truth. And here's why it's important. Because today we live in an era where people don't want to believe in the thing called absolute truth. People want to say, well, just believe whatever you want. That'll be just fine. Follow your heart. If you think that's okay, you can just do that. that Jesus will just forgive you. All roads will lead to God. But friends, that's not true. Because if Jesus is God and God is truth, then there is an absolute truth and his name is Jesus Christ. And if we believe that Jesus is God and we believe that Jesus is absolute truth, then that should affect everything that we believe. It should have impact every area of our life because he is God and what he says is true. Whether it's popular today or not, we follow Jesus because he is God and God is truth. We've strayed so far from that in our country today. Let me try to summarize this one verse. It's got so many implications Here's the way I summarized it. That Jesus has always existed from all eternity as God. 
And as he's always existed from all eternity as God, he's existed in perfect fellowship with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. It's a lot to get through in just one verse, isn't it? In verse 2, he continues this theme of taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. In verse 2, he says, he was in the beginning. There's that phrase again. He was in the beginning with God. So in verse 1, John's emphasizing that Jesus has always existed, that he is eternal, that he has always been. And then in verse 2, he takes a turn and he's trying to say, not only has Jesus always existed, but he has always existed with God the Father. In verse 3, we see what was Jesus' role in creation. If we know that it wasn't just God who was present in creation, but Jesus was there, what was his particular role in creation? The first thing you see is that all things were made through Jesus. Verse 3, all things were made through him. Pretty simple, isn't it? You went, man, I'm so smart that I come up with that line there. Jesus wasn't just present in creation. No, Jesus was actively involved in creation. All things were made through him. Other translations say all things came into existence through Jesus. I had the honor a a couple weeks ago to sit down with Mr. Jim Odom, um, who many of you know was instrumental in um, developing the Hubble Space Telescope. And we were talking about this verse And I was asking him about how how vast the universe is. And he made this statement to me. He said, Blake, did you know that for the longest time, we thought this is how large the universe was? And a few years ago, through the Hubble Space Telescope, we realized that we were off by a factor of 10. I pulled this up off of NASA's website. This was just in 2016. Then it says, Hubble reveals observable universe contains 10 times more galaxies than previously thought. Today, NASA believes, you always get in trouble, you talk about NASA in here because I've got lots of people that can correct me in here. Here's what my research showed, that there are 10 billion galaxies that we know of. 10 billion. Now we live in what galaxy? The Milky Way galaxy. That's one of 10 billion galaxies. It's estimated that each galaxy contains somewhere around 100 billion stars. That means there are 121, and I don't know what that number is. I just know that there are 21 zeros behind it. That's how many stars that we know of even today. But just a few years ago, we were off by 10. Who knows how far we're off by now? Here's what's even more astounding to me. Mr. Odom told me this. He said, NASA now believes that there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand in all the beaches and all the world. Think about that. There are more stars in all of the universe than all of the grains of sand in all the beaches in all of the world. And Jesus created it all. Not only did he create the vastness of this universe, he also created the very smallest subatomic particle that can be seen through a microscope. Paul put it this way in Colossians. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We also see that Jesus 
He holds all things together. The second part of verse 3 says, And without him was not anything made that was made. John is saying that Jesus is so central to creation that without him, the universe would what? It would fall apart. He says this in Colossians 1.17, And in him all things do what? Hold together. The third thing, the way we see Jesus' role in creation is that Jesus upholds the universe by his powerful word. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus sustains all things just by the power of his word. Here it is in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe, listen to this, by the word of his power. Friends, this is a Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that we pray to. May we not treat him casually or forget his value and his power. Yes, he is a friend to us, but he is unlike any friend that we have ever imagined, any friend that we have ever had. Let us not compare him to anyone else who has the power to create, who has the power to sustain the world just by his powerful spoken word. He upholds the universe. Over Christmas break, Lindsay and I took Noah and Anna Reese to see the new Mary Poppins movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. Our kids, they particularly love the, the, the soundtrack. And so we listen to it a lot. And um, one day I was taking, it was just uh, me bringing the kids home. It doesn't happen often, okay? So I'm not trying to be super dad here. But I did this one time. I think it was a Wednesday night or Sunday. And we were listening to it. And Noah said, Dad, Mary Poppins is so cool, isn't she? And I said, yeah, she is cool. And he said, she's just like God. And I finally put the song on pause. I wanted to use this as a teaching moment. I said, yeah, Mary Poppins is cool. But no one, no one's like God. No one is as cool as God. No one is as powerful. No one is as holy. No one is as mighty. No one is as loving as God. You see, I didn't want Noah to think that God is on the same plane as anyone else, whether it's Mary Poppins or LeBron James or Mickey Mouse. I wanted him to know that there is no one like our God. And I started thinking about, but don't we do that as adults? We put God on the same plane as other people. We like God. He's good. He's important, but he's not any more important than some other people in our lives. Friends, any times we put God on the same playing field as our hobbies, as our family, as our career, we have missed the commands and the demands that he has given his followers that we treat God as holy, as separate, as completely above anything and everything in our lives today. So John tells us not only about the power of Jesus, but he goes on in verse 4 to explain that Jesus is the source of, of all life. Look at verse 4. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Two words here that I want to focus on for just a moment. The words life and light. These are two words that if you read any of John's writings, whether it's John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation, you will see these words used over and over again by John. That word life, we know that it was God himself who first breathed what? Life into Adam. That's what separates humans from everyone else, is that God breathed life into us. But if you read the, the word carefully, and that word life, it's actually used 11 times in John's gospel. 
It never refers just to physical life. It never refers just to the breath that we have. It always refers to eternal life. So maybe a a more accurate way to read John chapter 1 verse 4 would be, in him was eternal life. Then he talks about this word light. What does light do? What's the purpose of light? Light reveals things, right? Darkness hides things, but light brings things into light. In essence, what John is trying to tell his readers is that Jesus is the revelation. He is the fulfillment of God's promise for those who have been living and been walking in darkness. Those who have been walking in darkness, Jesus is the light. He is the revelation. He is God's ultimate communication of truth if we will follow him. Life all throughout the New Testament, it's associated with eternal life. And this eternal life is a result, a gift of God's redemption. It's never a result of trying harder, doing my best. It is always a result of God acting on his behalf to offer and extend to us eternal life. Later in his gospel, John will write in John 8 verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, friends, when we trust Christ as our Savior, when we ask Him to forgive us of our sins, we repent and we believe. He literally takes us on this path where we were once walking in darkness, and He picks us up and He sets us on a new path that now we are walking in light. This light that we now walk in as followers of Jesus, it should be evident to all. Why? Because light exposes darkness. Light does not try to hide in the shadows. Light gives light to all the darkness and everything that's around you. So if that's true, let me ask you this question. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, if you recognize that once you were walking in darkness and now because of the grace of God, you are walking in light, the question I want to ask you is, is it evident to those around you that you have been transformed by Jesus? If you were walking in darkness and now you're walking in light, do those around you, can they tell it? Because I say this, not trying to be mean, but with all sincerity. If not, you need to ask yourself some questions. See, Jesus couldn't have made this more plain plain all throughout his teachings. He uses phrases like, we are to be salt and light, that we are to be the, the city on a hill, that we are to, to that he, we would know that we are his disciples by our love, by our fruit, that we are to make sure that we shine like stars in the universe. And my question is, why is it that so many times as Christians, we want to blend in with the world instead of doing what he's called us to do, which is to stand out in stark contrast to the way the world is living? I was on a plane a few months ago coming back from somewhere, and whenever I'm on a plane, I, I, I try not to let the person next to me know what I do for a living. Not because I'm embarrassed, okay? But normally when they find out that you are a preacher, then they, they, they start lying, which is funny. You know, they say, oh, well, I go to church all the time, and let me tell you about this thing. I, you don't have to lie. You can be yourself, okay? Um, it's just what I do. But this guy kept asking me what I did. And so finally, I, I said, I'm a pastor, And he said, Blake, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He said, why is it that you think that Christianity is not as important in America 
as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I sat there and I thought about it. I said, well, the reason I don't think it's as important today is because I think that cultural Christianity is now a thing of the past. I think that's why you see church attendance all across our country. It's in decline. See, it used to be that you were expected to go to church on Sunday, right? It was the cultural norm, especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt, especially if you grew up in the South. You almost felt guilty if you didn't go to church. But for the younger generation, I would say 50 and below. Aren't you glad 50 I included you? Come on, give me some credit here. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think there's this expectation that I'm going to go to church because I'm supposed to. I believe that people now will go to church only if it adds meaning and value and purpose to their life. And let me just be honest with you for a second. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Now, do I want as many people as possible here on Sunday mornings? You better believe I do. But I'm not so sure that if we have a church that's filled with 50% of the people are committed to Jesus, they're living His Word, they've been transformed by the gospel, and the other 50%, they're just coming because they're supposed to, because it looks good to be here, and because the, you know, that's the way they were raised. I'm not sure what that does to the lost person who comes inside of a church who knows that they haven't been saved by the grace of God, and they're looking for what it looks like to be a genuine follower of Jesus. See, here's the good thing, in my opinion, about the death of cultural Christianity. And that is that when a lost person comes to church and sees a genuine person whose life has been transformed by the gospel, who was once walking in darkness and is now walking in light, when they see them, they should see such a stark contrast to their life. They should see that genuine joy that they have, that purpose, that meaning, that value that they have in their life. And my hope is they would say, that's what I'm missing. That's what's not in my life. I don't have that joy. I don't have that peace, no matter what's going on, and I'm missing it. And I hope that would then lead to a conversation to the gospel. This is why I have peace in the midst of difficult situations, because Jesus has come and he's transformed my life. And before we close with the Lord's Supper, there's one last verse I want to get to. That's verse 5. Verse 5 says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you have the NIV translation. The NIV says darkness has not, I love this, understood it. Darkness hasn't understood the light. The New Living Translation says darkness can never extinguish it. Friends, if you don't take anything else away from the message this morning, I hope you'll take this away. And in verse 5, what Jesus teaches us is that however dark the world may get, it cannot overcome the light of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how dark our world gets. We know the end of the story. What's the end of the story? God wins. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, this world is not our home. So we don't worry. We don't tend to, to keep our grip thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. We know the end of the story. No matter how difficult, no matter how much darkness attempts, light will win. Darkness has not, nor will it ever overcome, extinguish the light. So my encouragement is, friends, as Christians, let's live in the light of this final victory. We may be down right now. That report may come back and say, that cancer's terminal. It's going to take your life. 
You may be having difficulties at home. Our world may continue, and our country may continue to have more and more difficulty because of the ugliness of politics today. But hold on to the fact that if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you, and the light that is in you is greater than the darkness that's surrounding you at the moment. And we live in the victory of knowing this light will not be extinguished. No matter what happens, we live in that light. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. But praise God for this next statement. But take heart. Why? Here's the phrase again. I have overcome the world. Don't you know that's why Satan's working so hard right now? He knows the end of the story. I think it may come sooner than we think. He knows that his destruction is coming, that he is going to be ultimately and finally defeated. So why don't we as followers of Jesus live in the same confidence that light shines in the darkness? And the darkness will not now, nor will it ever overcome it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your word, for the promise that you are the eternal God, that you exist through God the Father, through Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you have offered to us if we would repent of our sins and trust you as our Savior and our Lord. You stand willing, waiting, and ready to forgive. Lord, I pray for each and every person here today that if they have never trusted you for salvation, that today they would turn from their sins. They would stop trying to earn your love or earn your approval. Instead, they would see that when you look upon the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, that means that our, the, the consequences of our sin have been paid in full if we will accept that gift of salvation. And Lord, as we come to now the time where we celebrate and we partake of the Lord's Supper, would you stir within us, Lord, a gratitude for the cross, a thankfulness for the sacrifice that was made so that we might have eternal life. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that the grave is empty today and we live in the light of your victory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.